ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Australians' love of homegrown olive oil is booming and the industry credits much of its success to one man. Chances are, though, you've never heard of him. But many are saying that he and his team are the reason Aussie olive oil is having its time in the sun. And now some olive oil, about 125 millilitres. I find that easiest to use an American half-cut measure. Drizzle with a lovely green ribbon of olive oil. Mm, Beautiful. You can drizzle it, you can glug it, a splash here, a pour there. Olive oil is a firm favourite of chefs and a mainstay in many cooks' pantries. Australia's industry likes to describe olive oil production with a lovely quip saying it's from tree to table. It starts with harvesting during winter, the fruit's taken for crushing and pressing, it's then decanted, grated and sold. Now in this country there's one company that produces around 70% of the nation's olive oil and yet the bloke in charge is 100% born and bred in the bush. Hello, my name is Ali Felton-Taylor and this is how a boy from outback Queensland went from crutching fly-blown sheep to become an oil baron. Yeah, it's an overnight success. It's taken 25 years. Meet Rob McGavin. Right now, he and his wife Kate are the majority shareholders in Australia's biggest olive oil company, Cobram Estate. It's also the third largest in the United States. It's a business Rob started with his old friend Paul Reardon who he met when they were both at Victoria's Marcus Oldham College. But the story behind the company starts much earlier. Smack bang in the middle of Queensland on an idyllic family grazing property called Jubilee Park. It's southwest of Barcaldine. That was home to the McGavin family. It was there on that sheep and cattle block that his resilience was first tested after what was a truly tough start for Rob, his older sister Sue and younger brother Tim when their mother passed away. All three kids were under 10. This left their father to raise them. Dad brought the three of us up, and my brother Tim, who was five, and I was seven, and Sue was nine. And then we luckily went to boarding school because Dad didn't send us to school very often because we were always mustering or doing something more important. What was school like after having such a tragedy and then obviously ploughing into work and having to keep the place going? Oh, look, it was really hard for Dad, of course. We didn't know Mum was sick and so it was a big shock, but, you know, kids can cope with a lot, you know, so it's probably Dad that really suffered the, the brunt. And maybe, my, yeah, my sister, because there was just boys in the house and she, you know, just did all the washing, the cooking, the everything. It was great when she would make us custard or chocolate sauce for breakfast. Dad would be at mustering or something and we'd, oh, so that was terrific. And yeah, we went to boarding school which was fantastic and yeah, Dad was you know, just a really really hard working farmer. Only went to grade 6 and unique and very, very supportive of what we wanted to do. As long as we were working, it didn't matter and he'd bend over backwards to do more work himself if we could do contract mustering for someone else or help someone else so yeah after school went to I stayed at home for a year actually working and went to the Kimberley for a couple of years there was very little time off but it it sort of didn't matter it was just make your own fun it was it was all horses there was no motorbikes obviously helicopters Um, but I suppose a good thing for any young kid 
particularly going to work on a station is that you have to and even country kids have got a bit of a natural advantage in the fact that you've got to sort of work things out yourself and make your own fun and you can't just google something or whatever to say look when we're going to that paddock the cattle will be there and they're going to go this direction you sort of you don't know you might get lost you get a flat tire you sort of work out yourself and it really helps you think so i think it's a fantastic thing for young people to do to go and work for someone else for a few years then go and get an education but before hitting the books Rob spent another year contract fencing, mustering and crutching around the Barcaldon district. But it was in Geelong, at Marcus Oldham, where he says he learnt some of the most valuable life lessons. I think I turned 24 literally weeks after I arrived there and it was life-changing for me. I learnt to touch type of all things, basic law, accounting, HR, marketing, economics. It's just... It's, oh, it's just I use the skills every day and I was only there for a year but it was just full on six contact hours a day and a great group of people and great mates Are you still mates with some of those people oh, now? Oh so yeah, they're actually best we had our reunion 30 year reunion actually a few weekends ago there was only three people didn't turn up and they're from all over Australia people from Tasmania, Perth they're just such a strong bond Now, he's still involved in the college to this day. He's currently the chair of the Marcus Oldham College Council. So the next major foray into business was actually viticulture. It was there he saw an opportunity. I was sort of interested in wine grapes because it was... We'd done some tours and seen wine grapes. I'd been on a bit of a rugby tour to Ireland the year before and had seen how much Australian wine, and I was just in a hurry to think, how can I you know make some money and maybe a bit of that was driven by dad we never went on holidays you know just we we used to drive to brisbane we had an old land cruiser with a tray back one of those old types and you know one two kids would be in the back all the way to brisbane in one day and then we'd be going for three days but dad gets sick after a day so we'd turn around and come home again but you know he was he was just probably not in a great place after mum died when we were we were young so it, it was really because I thought we could make some money out of it and it worked really well so we bought a vineyard at Renmark I asked dad if he'd mortgage the farm it was $250,000 it wasn't a lot and the wine industry just it was just good luck it just went up and up and up and we just expanded and expanded and expanded and Tim my brother came down and we just banged tens of thousands of posts in and planted vines and whatever. What varieties? Chardonnay, Shiraz and Cabernet were the three main ones. They would have been 80% of our varieties. But, yeah, we had a whole, quite a few others as well. And we wrote long-term contracts with Rosemount Estate, and, you know, 10-year contracts, and it was really what set us up financially, to be honest. But, again, we borrowed a lot of money. You know, I think by the time we sold... I don't know, we, we sold 80% for a bit over $10 million in two thousand and four. Four, but we had something like $5 million debt then, so we're pretty aggressive. But when you haven't got much to lose, you're sort of a bit more... Con- I'm a bit more conservative these days. I was going to say, <laughs> what gave you the appetite for that risk? It was calculated risk because obviously you would... It was only $230,000 initially for the first vineyard. You know, I think the cheque was almost as big as our debt from selling the grapes that year. Then they doubled again and then we planted more. So each year we'd go, oh jeepers we made a lot of money you know we'd then go and get an, another application to the bank then pl- plant more and but do it with a longer contract so that we knew we'd take a bit less money but a guaranteed price so just to sort of hedge that risk and obviously coming from Marcus 
analyzing things financially and really knowing how to budget and how to you know plan and analyze helped a huge amount as well but of course we didn't think the industry was going to go as well as it did and obviously it's in the in the doldrums now but that's how most capitalism works the vineyard was in the riverland region of south australia and rob explains everything just lined up you know when things are hot and there's momentum yeah it was it's an unbelievable success story but the hangover lasts and then other people you know mistakes obviously made with marketing or markets and then competition comes in and you know we as farming you know you know we'd, we'd been through the shooting sheep in the early 90s and the wool boom in the late 80s and having experienced that it was like well we'll plant these grapes but we really want a long-term contract 10 years and and that was probably the smartest thing that we we did and rob says lady luck was smiling right down to the end of his major investment in growing grapes we sold 80 percent. we kept managing it and kept that ownership and and we in in actually in 2020 we just sold out of the last we sold the whole thing again if that makes sense and literally a week after we got our money trying to put the import tariff on it was just blind luck <laughs> but we were awfully lucky Rob says it was then he and his old college friend Paul Reardon started to look at growing olive trees, something the South Australian government of the time was pushing. So after some research, they decided it was go hard or go home. Paul went overseas and looked to Israel, uh, Greece and Spain and sort of just, he was a young guy as well, he's a couple of years younger than me, but at the time he would have been probably 23 or 4. He went overseas and just looked at what varieties would work, the growing methods, the climate, all of those things. We then did our, all our financial analysis, worked out that did 10-year cash flow budgets and whatever. We just worked out if we didn't plant 500 hectares, we wouldn't be able to establish an industry because we just wouldn't have the scale. So, But the problem with that was it was going to cost $15 million to plant that and we had bugger all. So we decided to... Um, get investors in with us and they're still really the owners of Cobram Estate now. So we raised the $15 million over three years, planted the groves, got the 500 hectares in and look, because we'd done it from the ground up with the right varieties, we had to import the varieties from overseas, you know, we had so many near-death experiences, I could talk about it for an hour but I won't bore everyone and we, in 2004 we produced 25% of Australia's oil with only 2.5% of Australia's trees because we were getting good production because we would come at it from the right angle because olive trees are actually easy to grow but hard to make fruit consistently. And so, yeah, the business expanded. Timber Corp, which was an MIS company, came to us and said, look, we've just put $100 million in you know, two hours from where we were growing olives and they had 25% of Australia's area and growing 2% of the fruit because their trees weren't producing. But the trees were right and the climate was right. They just didn't know how to manage them to get them to produce. So they asked us if we'd come and manage those groves. We turned it all around. We were just paid as contractors to do that. Then they started saying, well, will you plant more olives for us? And we said, yeah, okay. So they bought land around where we were initially and we were marketing their oil and whatever. It was all open book and it was reasonably modest sort of returns but it allowed us to get some scale. And... Yeah, they, they went broke in the GFC and just all hell broke loose because we were reasonably leveraged to them. We had our own groves, obviously we had our own brand, we had a processing plant, but we had all the equipment that we had leased. All of the employees were on our books, not theirs. 
and they were prepaying us, but uh, you know they already they owed us something like two million dollars when they went broke, which then was a huge amount of money. So the global financial crisis, or GFC, if anyone needs reminding, was 2007 to 2008. It was the worst worldwide economic hit since the 1929 Great Depression. Yeah, it was pretty terrifying. Yeah, definitely had children. Our first child was born in 2002 and last one in 2005, so they went broke in 2009. I just, yeah, Kate was just, my wife was just so supportive and I was away for months. It was like 10 months of hell, literally, because our bank went feral and sort of pulled facility we had $10 million headroom in our facility, but they pulled that on you know, a clause in the facility agreement, which was a material adverse change clause. Um, so we didn't have the headroom. You know, the, there was four banks involved. They all had a representative. They all engaged in a firm to be their advisors. Then they couldn't all agree, so important advisors to advisors. Oh, any decision was really tough. And we had $30 million worth of crop hanging on trees literally the day they went broke and we're just about to start harvest, or I think we've been going for one or two days, and harvest costs around $200,000 a day because it's big groves. And there was $15 million in cost to get the fruit off the trees and $30 million in oil on the trees that we could give back to the um, timber corp growers, if that makes sense. But the banks were all controlling it. So, but, you know, we're in court for a, literally a week testing whether we could do it legally until finally there was a breakthrough. But then under that, we had to find the $15 million to harvest the $30 million off a crop. And then we, once we sold it, we could get our $15 million back. And we borrowed the money actually from a really generous man who had sold a business and he had the money aside for tax. And he took security over the oil, which he knew he could sell any day of the week. And he just we could slowly draw down on that. And we are paying 15% interest on that at the time. But it allowed us to get the crop off, keep, the brand going, whatever. We eventually, after 10 months, were able to buy all of the groves and processing plants from the liquidator or administrator and all of the banks. And we raised $20 million from our existing shareholders to sort of fund that. And we thought our problems were not... Were, and a lot of these groves were really young, but we got them reasonably cheap. But there was still $30 million to spend to get them to break even. So and the currency absolutely went through the roof, which meant that our competitors could just sell for less and still collect a fair bit of money in their country. Yeah, it was, it was pretty hard between 2009 and 2012, but we really turned the corner in 2012. After weathering the GFC, Rob says things started to look up for the vertically integrated business. The business is just a phenomenal business now. We produce uh, 70% of Australia's oil from our own groves got a bit over 18,000 hectares in total of freehold land. We own Cobram Estate and Red Island, which are the two major domestic brands, and we really focus on quality and we have a great growing system. We've recently expanded to the States. The company became listed on the Australian Securities Exchange in 2021 and has continued its expansion into the United States. They ventured to the US in 2014 it now boasts 207,500 olive trees planted on 358 hectares of owned and leased land in California. And Rob says things are looking up. It's going really well now, but it's a 
it's a slow burn growing olives. You've got to plant the tree. You know, you've got to order the tree. 18 months later, you plant it. Three years later, you get your first harvest, and it increases 20% a year for five years. So this is just long. But when you sort of get the market, get the consumer, it's hard to lose too. It's not like pay now after pay or anything that can come and go quickly. So competition's slow to come in. But look, they we harvest at a different time of the year over there. Obviously, northern hemisphere, southern hemisphere. You know, all of our research, all of our staff. You know, they do two. Uh, not all of them, but lots of them do two harvests per year. You can double the speed of all of your knowledge. You know, our little business, it's private, or well, now it's a public company, but rarely does this happen with in other businesses. But we've published more than, or our staff have published more than 30 peer-reviewed research projects just to solve problems and try and have higher quality, lower cost. So what about the future? We've been expanding pretty rapidly in Australia. I think we just put in another 600 hectares here, but we're putting most of our effort into the USA it's a hugely exciting market it's 10 times the size of Australia we can do it really well the market love it it's pretty capital hungry but yeah that's where we've just finished actually a 30 million dollar expansion here in Australia as well on our processing on our processing one of our processing plants most of our capital in Australia has been spent and we're looking at the USA Rob McGavin when you were crutching fly-blind sheep as a contractor back around Buck Alden did you ever dream that you'd be involved in the business that you've created? No, never, never. And I've had so much luck, so... At this point, I thought Rob's modesty was getting the better of him. So I asked him again, was it really all luck? Or perhaps was it something born out of his tough childhood and consequent resilience? Well, I suppose giving up's never an option, so you'd have to say yes, and you just... If things are getting tough, you just go harder. Like, even in the olive business, obviously Kate and I are the largest shareholders. We have about 17%, but we just, the directors and the people around our table, just when things got tough, Timbercourt went broke. Going broke was just never discussed. It was not an option. Just do anything to make it work, including don't take a salary, don't take director's fees. Kate and my little my wife and little three boys and I'm not saying this because I reckon most people would do this but we and lots of our other employees literally went in and I mean I remember our little boys are all under 10 working from 10am one morning till till 2am the next day non-stop packing olive oil before Christmas because we just had to get it out the door we, if we knew if we could break even Dad's favourite saying was only one way to go broke and that's to spend more than you earn. So if you're breaking even, you can go forever, but if you're losing money, you, you can't. So we just had to break even. and No, uh, yeah, look, obviously determined, but had a lot of luck, a huge amount of wonderful people, supporters, mentors. Our shareholders have just been incredible, just, just good people, and they love the business. They love what's been developed in Australia and they've been so patient. That's Rob McGavin. He grew up at Barcald and now he and his wife Kate are the majority shareholders in Cobram Estate. And as consumers glugged down more of the local product than ever, past president of the Australian Olive Association and horticulturalist Paul Miller says they have Rob McGavin's focus on quality to thank for it. He told Ellie Bradfield it wasn't always easy. The expansion of the industry in um mid to late 90s and early 2000s was driven by a government-sponsored program to increase intensive agriculture, which 
enable people to claim tax deductions, even if they were just, you know, investing a small amount. And a, a whole swag of projects got up and some of them succeeded and some didn't. And and that and when some started collapsing, that created its own challenges in the first decade of this century. And then we had the drought. And then we had coming out of the drought floods. So they had to deal with all of that and still come through. And and this focus on quality in the end has won. But the other thing that I would say about Rob and Paul and Rob in particular, he surrounded himself with very good people. They had a connection somehow with Argentina and they brought in a few people, three in particular come to mind, who were skilled, technically sound, dedicated to quality and, and had experience that we didn't have in Australia. That team led by Rob ended up producing, I don't know, 70, 80% of Australia's olive oil. But more importantly, the quality of what they're turning out and have done for years now at large scale challenged the other large producers around the world to the point where now in the Australian market, Australian consumers are definitely getting, on average, the best quality olive oil in the world in retail. And that focus on quality has seen the industry focus on quality. And to get as big as he has, how big mm. were the risks that Rob took? At the beginning, I don't think there was too much of a risk. And we, I think it became more risky when the competition started to reduce its prices. The managed investment scheme started to collapse some of them quite large, and, and that affected the investment mood, I suppose. And also we had climatic challenges that we weren't expecting. We didn't expect frost to be such an issue in Australia, and especially with the drought in the first decade of this century, and, and even since then, it's much more of a factor than we thought. So it became risky when they got bigger, when, when they took on management of other projects and then decided, well, we, we've built this team, we've built this business, we don't want it to shrink, we, we, we're not going to give up, we're going to take on bigger things to, to try and overcome these problems. And I know that wasn't easy, but the people that he surrounded himself with and the team that he put together was good enough to pull it off. Uh, and especially the Argentinian folk that... He, he brought to Australia. We're lucky to have them in Australia. These are world-class operators in any industry that happen to be interested in, in, in the olive industry. I think we've got uh, the best olive oil chemist in the world here who works at the, the lab that they set up so they could understand quality and do research. We've got a, a sensational horticulturist. You know, they, they brought in someone who's really good at processing olives. They, they put good people in those key positions. They were clever. They set up a lab to figure out how to do quality. They imported a machine that wasn't very good and then they bought that company and started building them better and made that work in terms of harvesting. You know, They, they, they just never saw any, any different way. But I love that because to me, coming back to the their determination, the personalities of, of Rob and the people he put around him, Paul too, kept that team together and the 
focus on quality. We're taking this is going to be a quality play at scale. Yes, it's going to be big, but consumers deserve the real thing. And if consumers get a product that they like, that's healthy, that's flavoursome, that works, we'll win. I don't think we realised it was going to take 25 years to win, but but they have won. Australia's consumption of olive oil is is strong. We're the biggest consumers outside the Mediterranean per capita, and it's growing. And there's no doubt in my mind that it's growing because the offering, Cobram Estate and the other major brands on the shelves, are really good quality, so it's an enjoyable product to consume. And you just look at the category, olive oil is leading the oils category, and it's not the cheapest one, it's the most expensive one. Consumers are getting a better product, and the supply chain is making more money. And that's underpinned the industry to the point where at the moment there's a shortage of olive oil because Spain and Italy and Greece had, had poor crops. But consumption hasn't dropped much. It's dropped a bit because there's not the olive oil, but people haven't dropped the product. They're prepared to pay a bit more for it because it's good, and, and that, that, that augurs well for our future.